0: 13. Liberating Ourselves and Counseling Others Freeing Ourselves from Old Programming We've all learned things that limit us as human beings, whether from well-intentioned parents, teachers, clergy, or others. Passed down through generations, even centuries, much of this destructive cultural learning is so ingrained in our lives that we are no longer conscious of it. In one of his routines, comedian Buddy Hackett, raised on his mother's rich cooking— Claimed that he never realized it was possible to leave the table without feeling heartburn until he was in the army. In the same way, pain engendered by damaging cultural conditioning is such an integral part of our lives that we can no longer distinguish its presence. It takes tremendous energy and awareness to recognize this destructive learning and to transform it into thoughts and behaviors that are of value and of service to life. This transformation requires a literacy of needs and the ability to get in touch with ourselves both of which are difficult for people in our culture. Not only have we never been educated about our needs, we are often exposed to cultural training that actively blocks our consciousness of them. As mentioned earlier, we have inherited a language that served kings and powerful elites in domination societies. The masses, discouraged from developing awareness of their own needs, have instead been educated to be docile and subservient to authority. Our culture implies that needs are negative and destructive. The word needy applied to a person suggests inadequacy or immaturity. When people express their needs, they are often labeled selfish, and the use of the personal pronoun I is at times equated with selfishness or neediness. By encouraging us to separate observation and evaluation, to acknowledge the thoughts or needs shaping our feelings, and to express our requests in clear action language, NBC heightens our awareness of the cultural conditioning influencing us at any given moment. And drawing this conditioning into the light of consciousness is a key step in breaking its hold on us. We can liberate ourselves from cultural conditioning. Resolving Internal Conflicts We can apply NBC to resolve the internal conflicts that often result in depression. In his book The Revolution in Psychiatry, Ernest Becker attributes depression to cognitively arrested alternatives. This means that when we have a judgmental dialogue going on within we become alienated from what we are needing and cannot then act to meet those needs. Depression is indicative of a state of alienation from our own needs. A woman studying NBC was suffering a profound bout of depression. She was asked to identify the voices within her when she felt the most depressed and to write them down in dialogue form as though they were speaking to each other. These were the first two lines of her dialogue. Voice 1, Career Woman, I Should Do Something More With My Life. I'm wasting my education and talents. Voice 2. Responsible mother, you're being unrealistic. You're a mother of two children and can't handle that responsibility, so how can you handle anything else? Notice how these inner messages are infested with judgmental terms and phrases such as should, wasting my education and talents, and can't handle. Variations of this dialogue had been running in this woman's head for months. She was asked to imagine the career woman voice taking an NBC pill in order to restate its message in the following form When A, I feel B, because I am needing C. Therefore, I now would like D. She subsequently translated I should do something with my life. I'm wasting my education and talents into, when I spend as much time at home with the children as I do without practicing my profession, I feel depressed and discouraged because I am needing the fulfillment I once had in my profession. Therefore, I now would like to find part-time work in my profession. Then it was the turn of her responsible mother voice to undergo the same process of translation. These lines, you're being unrealistic. You're a mother of two children and can't handle that responsibility, so how can you handle anything else? We're transformed into, when I imagine going to work, I feel scared because I'm needing reassurance that the children will be well taken care of. Therefore, I now would like to plan how to provide high-quality child care while I work and how to find sufficient time to be with the children when I am not tired. This woman felt great relief as soon as she translated her inner messages into NVC. She was able to get beneath the alienating messages she was repeating to herself and offer herself empathy. Although she still faced practical challenges, such as securing quality child care and her husband's support, she was no longer subject to the judgmental internal dialogue that kept her from being aware of her own needs. The ability to hear our own feelings and needs and empathize with them can free us from depression. Caring for our inner environment. When we are entangled in critical, blaming, or angry thoughts, it is difficult to establish a healthy internal environment for ourselves. NBC helps us create a more peaceful state of mind by encouraging us to focus on what we are truly wanting rather than on what is wrong with others or ourselves. A participant once reported a profound personal breakthrough during a three-day training. One of her goals for the workshop was to take better care of herself, but she woke at dawn the second morning with the worst headache in recent memory. Normally, the first thing I'd do would be to analyze what I had done wrong. Did I eat the wrong food? Did I let myself get stressed out? Did I do this, did I not do that? But, since I had been working on using NVC to take better care of myself, I asked instead, what do I need to do for myself right now with this headache? Focus on what we want to do rather than what went wrong. I sat up and did a lot of really slow neck rolls, then got up and walked around, and did other things to take care of myself right then instead of beating up on myself. My headache relaxed to the point where I was able to go through the day's workshop. This was a major, major breakthrough for me. What I understood, when I empathized with the headache, was that I hadn't given myself enough attention the day before, and the headache was a way to say to myself, I need more attention. I ended up giving myself the attention I needed and was then able to make it through the workshop. I've had headaches all my life, and this was a very remarkable turning point for me. At another workshop a participant asked how NBC might be used to free us from anger-provoking messages when we are driving on the freeway. This was a familiar topic for me. For years my work involved traveling by car across the country, and I was worn and frazzled by the violence-provoking messages racing through my brain. Everybody who wasn't driving by my standards was an arch-enemy, a villain. Thoughts spewed through my head, what the hell is the matter with that guy? Doesn't he even watch where he's driving? In that state of mind, all I wanted was to punish the other drivers, and since I couldn't do that, the anger lodged in my body and exacted its toll. Eventually, I learned to translate my judgments into feelings and needs and to give myself empathy. Boy, I am petrified when people drive like that, I really wish they would see the danger in what they are doing. Phew! I was amazed how I could create a less stressful situation for myself by simply becoming aware of what I was feeling and needing rather than blaming others. Diffuse stress by hearing our own feelings and needs. Later I decided to practice empathy toward other drivers and was rewarded with a gratifying first experience. I was stuck behind a car going far below the speed limit and slowing down at every intersection. Fuming and grumbling, that's no way to drive, I noticed the stress I was causing myself and shifted my thinking instead to what the other driver might be feeling and needing. I sensed that the person was lost, feeling confused, and wishing for some patience from those of us following. When the road widened enough for me to pass, I saw that the driver was a woman who looked to be in her 80s with an expression of terror on her face. I was pleased that my attempt at empathy had kept me from honking the horn or engaging in my customary tactics of displaying displeasure toward people whose driving bothered me. Diffuse stress by empathizing with others. Replacing diagnosis with NVC. Many years ago, After having just invested nine years of my life in the training and diplomas necessary to qualify as a psychotherapist, I came across a dialogue between the Israeli philosopher Martin Buber and the American psychologist Carl Rogers, in which Buber questions whether anyone can do psychotherapy in the role of a psychotherapist. Buber was visiting the United States at the time and had been invited, along with Carl Rogers, to a discussion at a mental hospital in front of a group of mental health professionals. In this dialogue Buber posits that human growth occurs through a meeting between two individuals who express themselves vulnerably and authentically in what he termed an I-thou relationship. He did not believe that this type of authenticity was likely to exist when people meet in the roles of psychotherapist and client. Rogers agreed that authenticity was a prerequisite to growth. He maintained, however, that enlightened psychotherapists could choose to transcend their own role and encounter their clients authentically. Buber was skeptical. He was of the opinion that even if psychotherapists were committed and able to relate to their clients in an authentic fashion, such encounters would be impossible as long as clients continued to view themselves as clients and their psychotherapists as psychotherapists. He observed how the very process of making appointments to see someone at their office and paying fees to be fixed dimmed the likelihood of an authentic relationship developing between two persons. This dialogue clarified my own long-standing ambivalence toward clinical detachment a sacrosanct rule in the psychoanalytic psychotherapy I was taught. To bring one's own feelings and needs into the psychotherapy was typically viewed as a sign of pathology on the part of the therapist. Competent psychotherapists were to stay out of the therapy process and to function as a mirror onto which clients projected their transferences, which were then worked through with the psychotherapist's help. I understood the theory behind keeping the psychotherapist's inner process out of psychotherapy and guarding against the danger of addressing internal conflicts at the client's expense. However, I had always been uncomfortable maintaining the requisite emotional distance, and furthermore believed in the advantages of bringing myself into the process. I thus began to experiment by replacing clinical language with the language of NBC. Instead of interpreting what my clients were saying in line with the personality theories I had studied, I made myself present to their words and listened empathically. Instead of diagnosing them, I revealed what was going on within myself. At first, this was frightening. I worried about how colleagues would react to the authenticity with which I was entering into dialogue with clients. However, the results were so gratifying to both my clients and myself that I soon overcame any hesitation. Today, 35 years later... The concept of bringing oneself fully into the client therapist relationship is no longer heretical, but when I began practicing this way, I was often invited to speak to groups of psychotherapists who would challenge me to demonstrate this new role. I empathized with clients instead of interpreting them, I revealed myself instead of diagnosing them. Once I was asked, by a large gathering of mental health professionals at a state mental hospital, to show how NVC might serve in counseling distressed people. After my one hour presentation, I was requested to interview a patient in order to produce an evaluation and recommendation for treatment. I talked with the 29 year old mother of three children for about half an hour. After she left the room, the staff responsible for her care posed their questions. Dr. Rosenberg, her psychiatrist began, please make a differential diagnosis. In your opinion, is this woman manifesting a schizophrenic reaction or is this a case of drug induced psychosis? I said that I was uncomfortable with such questions. Even when I worked in a mental hospital during my training, I was never sure how to fit people into the diagnostic classifications. Since then, I had read research indicating a lack of agreement among psychiatrists and psychologists regarding these terms. The reports concluded that diagnoses of patients in mental hospitals depended more upon the school the psychiatrist had attended than the characteristics of the patients themselves. I would be reluctant, I continued to apply these terms even if consistent usage did exist, because I failed to see how they benefited patients. In physical medicine, pinpointing the disease process that has created the illness often gives clear direction to its treatment, but I did not perceive this relationship in the field we call mental illness. In my experience of case conferences at hospitals, the staff would spend most of its time deliberating over a diagnosis. As the allotted hour threatened to run out. The psychiatrist in charge of the case might appeal to the others for help in setting up a treatment plan. Often, this request would be ignored in favor of continued wrangling over the diagnosis. I explained to the psychiatrist that NBC urges me to ask myself the following questions rather than think in terms of what is wrong with a patient what is this person feeling? What is she or he needing? How am I feeling in response to this person? And what needs of mine are behind my feelings? What action or decision would I request this person to take in the belief that it would enable them to live more happily? Because our responses to these questions would reveal a lot about ourselves and our values, we would feel far more vulnerable than if we were to simply diagnose the other person. On another occasion, I was called to demonstrate how NBC could be taught to people diagnosed as chronic schizophrenics. With about 80 psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, and nurses watching, 15 patients who had been thus diagnosed were assembled on the stage for me. As I introduced myself and explained the purpose of NBC, one of the patients expressed a reaction that seemed irrelevant to what I was saying. Aware that he'd been diagnosed as a chronic schizophrenic, I succumbed to clinical thinking by assuming that my failure to understand him was due to his confusion. You seem to have trouble following what I'm saying, I remarked. At this, another patient interjected, I understand what he's saying and proceeded to explain the relevance of the first patient's words in the context of my introduction. Recognizing that the man was not confused, but that I had simply not grasped the connection between our thoughts, I was dismayed by the ease with which I had attributed responsibility for the breakdown in communication to him. I would have liked to have owned my own feelings by saying, for example, I'm confused. I'd like to see the connection between what I said and your response, but I don't. Would you be willing to explain how your words relate to what I said? With the exception of this brief departure into clinical thinking, the session with the patients went successfully. The staff, impressed with the patients' responses, wondered whether I considered them to be an unusually cooperative group of patients. I answered that when I avoided diagnosing people and instead stayed connected to the life going on in them and in myself, people usually responded positively. A staff member then requested a similar session be conducted, as a learning experience, with some of the psychologists and psychiatrists as participants. At this, the patients who had been on stage exchanged seats with several volunteers in the audience. In working with the staff, I had a difficult time clarifying to one psychiatrist the difference between intellectual understanding and the empathy of NVC. Whenever someone in the group expressed feelings— he would offer his understanding of the psychological dynamics behind their feelings rather than empathize with the feelings. When this happened for the third time, one of the patients in the audience burst out, can't you see you're doing it again? You're interpreting what she's saying rather than empathizing with her feelings. By adopting the skills and consciousness of NBC, we can counsel others in encounters that are genuine, open, and mutual, rather than resort to professional relationships characterized by emotional distance diagnosis, and hierarchy. Summary NBC enhances inner communication by helping us translate negative internal messages into feelings and needs. Our ability to distinguish our own feelings and needs and to empathize with them can free us from depression. By showing us how to focus on what we truly want rather than on what is wrong with others or ourselves, NBC gives us the tools and understanding to create a more peaceful state of mind. Professionals in counseling and psychotherapy may also use NBC to engender mutual and authentic relationships with their clients. NBC in action Dealing with resentment and self judgment. A student of nonviolent communication shares the following story I had just returned from my first residential training in NBC. A friend whom I hadn't seen for two years was waiting for me at home. I first met Iris, who had been a school librarian for 25 years. During an intense two week heartwork and wilderness journey that culminated in a three day solo fast in the Rockies. After she listened to my enthusiastic description of NBC, Iris revealed that she was still hurting from what one of the wilderness leaders in Colorado had said to her six years before. I had a clear memory of that person, Wild Woman Leave, her palms, gouged with rope cuts, holding steady a belayed body dangling against the mountain face, she read animal droppings, howled in the dark, danced her joy cried her truth, and mooned our bus as we waved goodbye for the last time. What Iris had heard leave say during one of the personal feedback sessions was this. Iris, I can't stand people like you, always and everywhere being so damn nice and sweet, constantly the meek little librarian that you are. Why don't you just drop it and get on with it? For six years Iris had been listening to leave's voice in her head, and for six years she'd been answering leave in her head we were both eager to explore how a consciousness of NBC could have affected the situation. I role-played leave and repeated her statement to Iris. Iris, forgetting about NBC and hearing criticism and put down, you have no right to say that to me. You don't know who I am, or what kind of librarian I am. I take my profession seriously, and for your information, I consider myself to be an educator, just like any teacher. Me, with NBC consciousness, listening empathically, as if I were leave, it sounds to me like you're angry because you want me to know and recognize who you really are before criticizing you. Is that so? Iris, that's right. You have simply no idea how much it took for me to even sign up for this trek. Look. Here I am, I finished, didn't I? I took on all the challenges these 14 days and overcame them all. Me, Am I hearing that you feel hurt and would have liked some recognition and appreciation for all your courage and hard work? A few more exchanges followed, whereupon Iris showed a shift. These shifts, when a person feels hurt to his or her satisfaction, can often be observed bodily. For instance, a person may relax and take a deeper breath. This often indicates that the person has received adequate empathy and is now able to shift attention to something other than the pain they have been expressing. Sometimes they are ready to hear another person's feelings and needs. Or sometimes another round of empathy is needed to attend to another area of pain. In this situation with Iris, I could see that another piece needed attention before she would be able to hear leave. This is because Iris had had six years of opportunities to put herself down for not having produced an honorable comeback on the spot. After the subtle shift, she immediately went on. Iris, darn, I should have said all this stuff to her six years ago. Me, as myself, an empathic friend, you're frustrated because you wish you could have articulated yourself better at the time? Iris, I feel like such an idiot. I knew I wasn't a meek little librarian, but why didn't I say that to her? Me, so you wish you had been enough in touch with yourself to say that? Iris, yes. And I'm also mad at myself. I wish I hadn't let her push me around. Me, you'd like to have been more assertive than you were? Iris, exactly. I need to remember I have a right to stand up for who I am. Iris was quiet for a few seconds. She expressed readiness to practice NVC and hear what Leave said to her in a different way. Me, as Leave, Iris, I can't stand people like you, always so nice and sweet, being forever the meek little librarian. Why don't you just drop it and get on with it? Iris, listening for Leave's feelings, needs, and requests. Oh, leave, it sounds to me like you're really frustrated, frustrated because, because I. Here Iris catches herself at a common mistake. By using the word I, she attributes Leave's feeling to Iris herself, rather than to some desire on Leave's own part that generates the feeling. That is, not you're frustrated because I am a certain way, but you're frustrated because you wanted something different from me. Iris, trying again, okay, leave it sounds like you're really frustrated because you are wanting, um, you're wanting. As I tried in my role play to earnestly identify with leave, I felt a sudden flash of awareness of what I, as leave, was yearning for. Me, as leave, connection, that's what I am wanting. I want to feel connected, with you, Iris. And I am so frustrated with all the sweetness and niceness that stand in the way that I just want to tear it all down so I can truly touch you. We both sat a bit stunned after this outburst, and then Iris said, If I had known that's what she had wanted, if she could have told me that it was genuine connection with me she was after, gosh, I mean, that feels almost loving. While she never did find the real leave to verify the insight, after this practice session in NBC, Iris achieved an internal resolution about this nagging conflict and found it easier to hear with a new awareness when people around her said things to her that she might previously have interpreted as put downs. The more you become a connoisseur of gratitude, the less you are a victim of resentment, depression, and despair. Gratitude will act as an elixir that will gradually dissolve the hard shell of your ego, your need to possess and control, and transform you into a generous being. The sense of gratitude produces true spiritual alchemy, makes us magnanimous, large-souled. Sam Kean, Philosopher 14 Expressing appreciation in nonviolent communication. The intention behind the appreciation. You did a good job on that report. You are a very sensitive person. It was kind of you to offer me a ride home last evening. Such statements are typically uttered as expressions of appreciation and life alienating communication. Perhaps you are surprised that I regard praise and compliments to be life alienating. Notice, however, that appreciation expressed in this form reveals little of what's going on in the speaker, it establishes the speaker as someone who sits in judgment. I define judgments, both positive and negative, as life-alienating communication. Compliments are often judgments, however positive of others. In corporate trainings, I often encounter managers who defend the practice of praising and complimenting by claiming that it works. Research shows, they assert that if a manager compliments employees, they work harder. And the same goes for schools, if teachers praise students, they study harder. I have reviewed this research, and my belief is that recipients of such praise do work harder, but only initially. Once they sense the manipulation behind the appreciation, their productivity drops. What is most disturbing for me, however, is that the beauty of appreciation is spoiled when people begin to notice the lurking intent to get something out of them. Furthermore, when we use positive feedback as a means to influence others, it may not be clear how they are receiving the message. There is a cartoon where one Native American remarks to another, watch me use modern psychology on my horse. He then leads his friend to where the horse can overhear their conversation and exclaims, I have the fastest, most courageous horse in all the West. The horse looks sad and says to itself, how do you like that? He's gone and bought himself another horse. When we use NBC to express appreciation, it is purely to celebrate, not to get something in return. Our sole intention is to celebrate the way our lives have been enriched by others. Express appreciation to celebrate, not to manipulate. The Three Components of Appreciation NBC clearly distinguishes three components in the expression of appreciation the actions that have contributed to our well being, the particular needs of ours that have been fulfilled the pleasurable feelings engendered by the fulfillment of those needs. The sequence of these ingredients may vary. Sometimes all three can be conveyed by a smile or a simple thank you. However, if we want to ensure that our appreciation has been fully received, it is valuable to develop the eloquence to express all three components verbally. The following dialogue illustrates how praise may be transformed into an appreciation that embraces all three components. Saying thank you in NVC, this is what you did this is what I feel, this is the need of mine that was met. Participant, approaching me after a workshop, Marshall, you're brilliant. MBR, I'm not able to get as much out of your appreciation as I would like. Participant, why, what do you mean? MBR, in my lifetime I've been called a multitude of names, yet I can't recall seriously learning anything by being told what I am. I'd like to learn from your appreciation and enjoy it. But I would need more information. Participant, like what? MBR, first, I'd like to know what I said or did that made life more wonderful for you. Participant, well, you're so intelligent. MBR, I'm afraid you've just given me another judgment that still leaves me wondering what I did that made life more wonderful for you. Participant, thinks for a while, then points to note she had taken during the workshop, look at these two places. It was these two things you said. MBR, ah, so it's my saying those two things that you appreciate. Participant, yes. MBR, next, I'd like to know how you feel in conjunction to my having said those two things. Participant, hopeful and relieved. MBR, and now I'd like to know what needs of yours were fulfilled by my saying those two things. Participant, I have this 18-year-old son whom I haven't been able to communicate with. I'd been desperately searching for some direction that might help me to relate with him in a more loving manner, and those two things you said provide the direction I was looking for. Hearing all three pieces of information, what I did, how she felt, and what needs of hers were fulfilled, I could then celebrate the appreciation with her. Had she initially expressed her appreciation in NBC, it might have sounded like this, Marshall, when you said these two things, showing me her notes, I felt very hopeful and relieved." because i have been searching for a way to make a connection with my son, and these gave me the direction I was looking for. Receiving Appreciation For many of us, it is difficult to receive appreciation gracefully. We fret over whether we deserve it. We worry about what's being expected of us, especially if we have teachers or managers who use appreciation as a means to spur productivity. Or we're nervous about living up to the appreciation. Accustomed to a culture where buying, earning, and deserving are the standard modes of interchange, we are often uncomfortable with simple giving and receiving. NBC encourages us to receive appreciation with the same quality of empathy we express when listening to other messages. We hear what we have done that has contributed to others' well-being, we hear their feelings and the needs that were fulfilled. We take into our hearts the joyous reality that we can each enhance the quality of others' lives. I was taught to receive appreciation with grace by my friend Nafs Asali. He was a member of a Palestinian team whom I had invited to Switzerland for training in NBC at a time when security precautions made training of mixed groups of Palestinians and Israelis impossible in either of their own countries. At the end of the workshop, Nafs came up to me. This training will be very valuable for us in working for peace in our country, he acknowledged. I would like to thank you in a way that we Sufi Muslims do when we want to express special appreciation for something. Locking his thumb onto mine. He looked me in the eye and said, I kiss the God in you that allows you to give us what you did. He then kissed my hand. Nafs' expression of gratitude showed me a different way to receive appreciation. Usually it is received from one of two polar positions. At one end is egotism, believing ourselves to be superior because we've been appreciated. At the other extreme is false humility, denying the importance of the appreciation by shrugging it off, oh, it was nothing. Naf showed me that I could receive appreciation joyfully in the awareness that God has given everyone the power to enrich the lives of others. If I am aware that it is this power of God working through me that gives me the power to enrich life for others, then I may avoid both the ego trap and the false humility. Receive appreciation without feelings of superiority or false humility. Golda Meir, when she was the Israeli prime minister, once chided one of her ministers, "Don't be so humble." you're not that great. The following lines, attributed to contemporary writer Mary Ann Williamson, serve as another reminder for me to avoid the pitfall of false humility. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us. You are a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our fear, our presence automatically liberates others. The Hunger for Appreciation Paradoxically, despite our unease in receiving appreciation, most of us yearn to be genuinely recognized and appreciated. During a surprise party for me, a 12-year-old friend of mine suggested a party game to help introduce the guests to each other. We were to write down a question, drop it in a box, and then take turns, each person drawing out a question and responding to it out loud. Having recently consulted with various social service agencies and industrial organizations, I was feeling struck by how often people expressed a hunger for appreciation on the job. No matter how hard you work, they would sigh, you never hear a good word from anyone. But make one mistake and there's always someone jumping all over you. So for the game, I wrote this question, what appreciation might someone give you that would leave you jumping for joy? A woman drew that question out of the box, read it, and started to cry. As director of a shelter for battered women, she would put considerable energy each month into creating a schedule to please as many people as possible. Yet each time the schedule was presented, at least a couple of individuals would complain. She couldn't remember ever receiving appreciation for her efforts to design a fair schedule. All this had flashed through her mind as she read my question, and the hunger for appreciation brought tears to her eyes. Upon hearing the woman's story, another friend of mine said that he, too, would like to answer the question. Everyone else then requested a turn, as they responded to the question, several people wept. While the craving for appreciation, as opposed to manipulative strokes is particularly evident in the workplace, it affects family life as well. One evening when I pointed out his failure to perform a house chore, my son Brett retorted, Dad, are you aware how often you bring up what's gone wrong but almost never bring up what's gone right? His observation stayed with me. I realized how I was continually searching for improvements, while barely stopping to celebrate things that were going well. I had just completed a workshop with more than a hundred participants, all of whom had evaluated it very highly, with the exception of one person. However, what lingered in my mind was that one person's dissatisfaction. We tend to notice what's wrong rather than what's right. That evening, I wrote a song that began like this If I'm 98% perfect in anything I do, it's the 2% I've messed up. I'll remember when I'm through. It occurred to me that I had a choice to adopt instead the outlook of a teacher I knew. One of her students, having neglected to study for an exam, had resigned himself to turning in a blank piece of paper with his name at the top. He was surprised when she later returned the test to him with a grade of 14%. What did I get 14% for? He asked incredulously. Neatness, she replied. Ever since hearing my son Brett's wake-up call— I've tried to be more aware of what others around me are doing that enriches my life, and to hone my skills in expressing this appreciation. Overcoming the Reluctance to Express Appreciation I was deeply touched by a passage in John Powell's book The Secret of Staying in Love, in which Powell describes his sadness over having been unable, during his father's lifetime, to express the appreciation he felt for his father to his father. How grievous it seemed to me to miss the chance of appreciating the people who have been the greatest positive influences in our lives. Immediately an uncle of mine, Julius Fox, came to mind. When I was a boy, he came daily to offer nursing care to my grandmother, who was totally paralyzed. While he cared for my grandmother, he always had a warm and loving smile on his face. No matter how unpleasant the task may have appeared to my boyish eyes, He treated her as if she were doing him the greatest favor in the world by letting him care for her. This provided a wonderful model of masculine strength for me, one that I've often called upon in the years since. I realized that I had never expressed my appreciation for my uncle, who himself was now ill and near death. I considered doing so, but since my own resistance, I'm sure he already knows how much he means to me, I don't need to express it out loud, besides, it might embarrass him if I put it into words. As soon as these thoughts entered my head, I already knew they weren't true. Too often I had assumed that others knew the intensity of my appreciation for them, only to discover otherwise. And even when people were embarrassed, they still wanted to hear appreciation verbalized. Still hesitant, I told myself that words couldn't do justice to the depth of what I wished to communicate. I quickly saw through that one, though, yes, words may be poor vehicles in conveying our heartfelt realities but as I have learned, anything that is worth doing is worth doing poorly. As it happened, I soon found myself seated next to Uncle Julius at a family gathering, and the words simply flowed out of me. He took them in joyfully, without embarrassment. Brimming over with feelings from the evening, I went home, composed a poem and sent it to him. I was later told that each day until he died three weeks later, my uncle had asked that the poem be read to him. Summary Conventional compliments often take the form of judgments, however positive, and are sometimes intended to manipulate the behavior of others. NBC encourages the expression of appreciation solely for celebration. We state, 1, the action that has contributed to our well-being, 2, the particular need of ours that has been fulfilled, and 3, the feelings of pleasure engendered as a result. When we receive appreciation expressed in this way, we can do so without any feeling of superiority or false humility, instead we can celebrate along with the person who is offering the appreciation. Epilogue I once asked my uncle Julius how he had developed such a remarkable capacity to give compassionately. He seemed honored by my question, which he pondered before replying, I've been blessed with good teachers. When I asked who these were, he recalled, your grandmother was the best teacher I had. You lived with her when she was already ill so you didn't know what she was really like. For example, did your mother ever tell you about the time during the depression when your grandmother brought a tailor and his wife and two children to live with her for three years, after he lost his house and business? I remembered the story well. It had left a deep impression when my mother first told it to me because I could never figure out where grandmother had found space for the tailor's family when she was raising nine children of her own in a modest-sized house. Uncle Julius recollected my grandmother's compassion in a few more anecdotes, all of which I had heard as a child. Then he asked, Surely your mother told you about Jesus? About who? Jesus. No, she never told me about Jesus. The story about Jesus was the final precious gift I received from my uncle before he died. It's a true story of a time when a man came to my grandmother's back door asking for some food. This wasn't unusual. Although grandmother was very poor, the entire neighborhood knew that she would feed anyone who showed up at her door. This man had a beard and wild, scraggly black hair, his clothes were ragged, and he wore a cross around his neck fashioned out of branches tied with rope. My grandmother invited him into her kitchen for some food, and while he was eating, she asked his name. My name is Jesus, he replied. Do you have a last name? She inquired. I am Jesus the Lord my grandmother's English wasn't too good. Another uncle, Easy later told me he had come into the kitchen while the man was still eating, and grandmother had introduced the stranger as Mr. Thelord. As the man continued to eat, my grandmother asked where he lived. I don't have a home. Well, where are you going to stay tonight? It's cold. I don't know. Would you like to stay here? She offered. He stayed seven years. When it came to communicating non-violently, my grandmother was a natural. She didn't think of what this man was. If she had, she probably would have judged him as crazy and gotten rid of him. No, she thought in terms of what people feel and what they need. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're without a roof over their head, give them a place to sleep. My grandmother loved to dance, and my mother remembers her saying often, Never walk when you can dance. And thus I end this book on a language of compassion with a song about my grandmother, who spoke and lived the language of nonviolent communication. One day a man named Jesus came around to my grandmother's door. He asked for a little food. She gave him more. He said he was Jesus the Lord. She didn't check him out with Rome. He stayed for several years. As did many without a home. It was in her Jewish way. She taught me what Jesus had to say. In that precious way. She taught me what Jesus had to say. And that's, feed the hungry, heal the sick. Then take a rest. Never walk when you can dance. Make your home a cozy nest. It was in her Jewish way. She taught me what Jesus had to say. In her precious way. She taught me what Jesus had to say. Grandma and Jesus, by Marshall B. Rosenberg